Well, if you have been here the last couple of months, uh, excluding the last couple of weeks when Cal uh, very graciously took over for me, you've heard us making our way through the book of Revelation. And as we've been going through, it started off, you know, a little bit weird, and each week it gets a little bit weirder. And we are not at peak weirdness yet, but we are getting pretty close with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, people under the altar crying out for justice, and then the end of the world uh, in the sixth seal. And just to remind us of where we've been, because I think this is really important if we're going to understand what's coming next, uh, we started off with Jesus appearing to John. In his ascended, this is Ascension Sunday, in his ascended and heavenly reality. And John saw him walking among the churches, which would be encouraging to know, wouldn't it? Jesus walks among his churches. Even the resurrected, heavenly, ascended Jesus walks among the churches. And he is the hero that we need, if you remember. He's got this crazy white hair, eyes like flame of fire. His skin is glowing. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is wise. He is the hero God promised long ago, even in the book of Daniel chapter 7. And then we hear letters to the seven churches. And the fact that there are seven churches is not a coincidence. It's actually highly symbolic and reminding us that even though these letters are addressed to seven real churches in what is modern-day southwest Turkey, nonetheless, they are messages for all of the church everywhere and at all times. In some way, those seven letters tell the church everything that it needs to know to be faithful, because that's what they're about in every context. But if you are paying attention, you'll notice that a number of those churches are either explicitly or implicitly asking the question, what good is it to be faithful in a world that has gone absolutely bonkers, absolutely crazy? Does anyone here wonder that? Ever? I mean, we wonder it in our own individual lives sometimes when things happen that we don't understand, we can't explain, they are painful, we don't know what to do, and we say, what good is faithfulness in a world that's gone crazy? And we look out at the world and we say, this world is crazy! Look at what's happening! Look at the, the mind-bogglingly strange things that people think! Look at the mind-bogglingly strange choices that world leaders make. What good is it to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of all of this? And then we get a picture in chapters 4 and 5 of God's heavenly throne room, and we see, first of all and most importantly, that even as the world has gone crazy, God is still seated on his throne. And all of heaven is still able to see the truth, and they bow down in ceaseless worship and praise. He is the sovereign one. He is faithful. He is true. And then we find that it's not just the Father there, but it's Jesus himself. Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet appears to John as the slain lamb. And maybe some of that picture starts to make some sense to us. 
What good is faithfulness in a world gone crazy? Well, Jesus is the one who modeled faithfulness to us in a way that nobody else was able to. He was faithful in being good all of the time in a way that we couldn't be. And then he was faithful in obeying God even when it didn't make any sense. Remember, he goes to the cross and all of his disciples are saying, don't go to the cross. You know, the Messiah can't go to the cross. That's where people die and are defeated. And yet Jesus goes to the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven where he is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is the slain lamb. And to spoil the story for us just a little bit, he calls us to that same way of living. Power in weakness. The sermon today I've entitled Losing Like We Mean It. When I was in college, uh, I, was, I played intramural sports, and uh, they wouldn't let me on the real sports teams. They barely let me on the intramural sports teams, but we played flag football, and now I'm, I'm a little ashamed of this because Biola is a Christian university, and in order to go to Biola, you have to sign this contract. It's like, I am Christian, and I'm going to live this way while I am here, and I hope you know, most or all of our lives long. So you generally get a pretty serious, committed Christian at Biola University. And our flag football team, if you watched you know, the intramural flag football, you'd be like, these people are not Christians. <laughs> like the level of competitiveness and competition and the language that you hear and all these other things, it's bad news. Now, like I said, I was lucky they even let me play intramural sports. And so one year, my, my floor, you know, in my dorm room, we organized our own intramural flag football team, and we lost every game. And we lost them spectacularly, like we meant it, right? We came out, we scored like two touchdowns the whole season long. And, you know, the school newspaper actually wrote an article about my team. And you know what they said? They said those people are the only ones who look like they're having any fun out there. They are losing like they mean it. And everyone else is finding no joy in victory. This isn't to toot my own horn. Remember, we lost every single game, usually spectacularly. But man, there is something about faithfulness that when people see it, when people, if they see us losing like Jesus, losing like we mean it, it will change the world that we live in. We can't help but do it. And that's what chapter 6 is really about. Jesus is acknowledging, God is acknowledging to the churches, yeah, I'm calling you to be faithful. And then he describes the world with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Even if you're not a Christian, you might have heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? And I, I wanna, I'm going to summarize the four horsemen. It is con conquest, conflict, cash, and then curtains, right? These are the four horsemen. The first one comes conquering. The second one comes with the sword to take peace away from the earth. The third one comes to ruin the world economies. Did you, if you may not have picked that up, this one wasn't quite as obvious, but it says uh, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages in my translation, and, or in the NIV, I should say, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. Oil and wine are more luxury items, so there's, you know, here is the guy who's concerned only about making the buck. Right, And then he said, all of this, here's what you can buy for a day's wages. As a person, I know we're not used to thinking about things uh, in this way, but two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. 
And that would be, so that's all you can buy with your whole wage for the day. For, for 80 to 90% of the people in the Roman Empire, that's all they could buy. So this doesn't even take into account whatever they owe other places, whatever medical bills they might have, whatever housing bills they might have. Their whole wage can only buy two pounds of wheat, or it can buy six pounds of barley, which I don't know if you've ever had wheat and barley. You know, if you've had them kind of, you know, bread versus barley. Barley is way not as good as wheat and bread. Has anyone experienced this? This is the truth, all right? I'm letting you know. This is enough for maybe an individual or a couple of, maybe a married couple to subsist on. But it's not enough for a family. As a matter of fact, it is so much not enough for a family that if you are a day laborer, like 80 to 90% of the people in the Roman Empire, and you're going to buy six pounds of the less good barley, some of your children will die. They will starve to death. And then finally, curtains. Right? We have the conqueror who cares only to get what he can for himself. We have the, the sword that's killing people left and right. We have hunger and famine killing people. The economy has gone haywire. And of course, all of that results in death. The fourth horseman, curtains. And here's the thing. This is not some end-time prophecy. John's describing the world that we live in today. He's saying, this is what it is like for you, church. This is what it's like for God's people. Maybe to greater or lesser degrees in different places and in different times. I don't think that we understand in the U.S. just how sheltered the vast majority of us are from the realities of the wider world. Can you imagine living in Europe, anywhere in Europe, in the 20th century? Forget the 20th century. In the 21st century, in Ukraine or Russia, the four horsemen are riding in these places. Can you imagine what it's been like to live in most of the world for most of history, where you don't know if the crop coming in every year is going to be enough to feed you and your family? where you don't know if some neighboring king or president or whoever it is will decide, well, I've had my eyes on that territory for a while, and I'm just going to take it. We experience, actually, the second horseman all the time, right? Because it's not just war in which peace is taken away from us. Peace is taken away from our very homes through crime, through conflict, through broken relationships. This is the way that the world is. It is a place of conquest at the expense of the conquered, a place of conflict that no one can avoid, a place where your cash helps you one day and can't feed you the next, and a place where at the end it's curtains for all of us. And God's people are living in the midst of this. They're saying, God... Hey, this makes sense if it's for the evil people in the world, right? Yeah, it's, yeah if, it would be nice if we lived in a world where only the evil people starved to death. But that's not the world that we live in. Let me tell you about my friend down the street. Let me tell you about my own life. It would be nice, God, if war only touched the evil people in our world. 
If it was only conquerors who fought against each other, but it's not. The world is not that way. Violence touches every one of us. As a matter of fact, Cal was telling us just last week how violence has touched his own family in a very tangible way. This is the world that we live in. And you know what's interesting? It says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come, and then the horseman comes. It happens for all four of the horsemen. One of the four living creatures, the mouthpiece for God, for Jesus Christ, commands each of these catastrophes, each of these satanic things, come, come and ride. And how can God do that? How can God do that? Has he become the source of the evil that's in our world? And if this was all that we had to go on, that might be the conclusion that we draw. Although the rest of the book of Revelation, I think, will help set us straight. But I want to take you back into the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Paul says this, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. There are a lot of ideas contained in this very brief sentence. Let me try and unpack it for you. Adam and Eve sin, right? And we repeat Adam and Eve's sin all the time. And what was Adam and Eve's sin ultimately? Right? Eve eats the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said don't eat. And this is not an arbitrary thing. God's not saying like, hmm, like what is some really obnoxious rule I can give to Adam and Eve to see if they'll keep it? Because what the serpent does in tempting Eve to eat, this is all Genesis 3 if you want to go back and read this. But what the serpent says is, hey, did God say you can't eat any of the food? And Eve says, no, we can eat it all except for that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. We're not even supposed to touch that, which isn't quite right. And we wonder why not. Maybe Adam really messed up in giving Eve some instructions. Ladies, that wouldn't be surprising, would it? Let's move on. So the serpent says to Eve, no, you won't die. Here's what's going to happen instead. You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And what does that mean? You will be able to choose for yourself. You won't need God to tell you yes or no. Don't touch. Do touch. You can decide. You can decide what's good for you. Hey, does anyone here do that like every day? Because there's only one sin. It's Adam and Eve's sin. It's saying, I will decide for myself, God. And so you know what God does? God says, Okay, let's see how that works out. And praise God, because if it was me, I'd be back all the time saying, yeah, how's that working out for you? <laughs> see you later. Good luck. But God never gives up and lets go of his people. I love that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Right? What's the chorus? He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Because my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. See, if you, uh, 
are in here and you know somebody, or maybe you yourself have been through addiction in one way or another, almost the universal truth is that as long as it is up to you, you will continue in your addiction, right? You'll just keep on going until one day the consequences, the cost of your addiction becomes so high. We call this what? Hitting rock bottom. And then you turn around and you start to say, how do I get out of here? How do I stop this? When I was in Seattle, uh, I remember we volunteered at the Union Gospel Mission once. And uh, the Union Gospel Mission is a a soup kitchen in the Seattle area with a bunch of programs aimed at uh, helping people in homelessness, helping people in poverty, and helping people in addiction. And there was a guy who was working there who was part of the program. He wasn't one of the volunteers who came in to feel good once every so often, but somebody who was desperately trying to put his life back together. And one of our friends, we went with our, our small group, and one of our friends went and talked to this guy, and he said, this is my seventh time through the program. And I hope this is the time that'll stick. You know, that's, that's what Romans 8.20 is saying. God said, okay. I will give you your way. I will subject the creation to frustration. This is the same word that appears over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, at least in the Septuagint version of it, if that means anything to you. If it doesn't, that's okay. Just take my word for it. But it's the word that Solomon often says in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, all is striving after wind. Right? Will you ever catch the wind? No. It's not the sort of thing you can catch. It's empty. It's purposeless. It cannot fulfill the purpose that God has for it. And God intentionally subjected the world to this in hope that we would finally hit rock bottom and say, it shouldn't be this way. I can't live like this any longer. God, save me. Sometimes I know people like to say, well, Christianity and faith, it's kind of like a crutch, right? It's for people who can't make it through this life on their own. They need someone to come in and help them out. What a bunch of losers. Well, we're losing like we mean it, right? Because we've realized that nobody makes it through this life on their own. Nobody can go back in time and make right the things that have gone wrong. That's what our society is grappling with. Why do you think things like critical race theory exist in our world? It's because people are trying to explain why this is all so broken and why nothing we do ever seems to ultimately fix what's gone wrong. And every time we try and come up with this explanation that doesn't run right back to Jesus and say, God, we need you to come and fix this. We're at rock bottom we find that there are yet deeper depths to this circle and this cycle that we're in. On and on and on. It's not that there's no wisdom in the world to make anything better at all. Don't misunderstand me. It's that there is no solution in the world to make it all right. We can make it better. A little bit at a time, here and there, but never right. The four horsemen are riding like crazy back and forth. But here's the other bit of good news. Yes, God is the one who says, come. And it makes us wonder, well, is he really good? And then we understand what he's about in this. We say, okay, he's still good. But, but here's the other good news. Because God is the one who says, come, he is still the one who sits on the throne. He is still in control. When Caesar persecutes the early Christians, 
the early Christians can understand God has allowed this for a time, but not forever. Not forever. God is using my suffering for this time for reasons that I may never know here. Oh God, I hope you'll tell us when we get there. But he is using every part of my life to accomplish his purposes. And this leads directly into our second point. The first is that God actually ordains the activity of the horseman, which fully reveals the wickedness of men. And then God also ordains the martyrdom of his people as key to the weight of evidence mounting against the wicked world. And there's more to that, but that's where we're going to start. See, we are the presence of Christ to the world. Jesus said this over and over again. He said things to his disciples like, hey, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first and you're supposed to be like me, right? Now, there are lots of reasons the world could hate us, right? It doesn't have to be just Christians. The world hates lots of people and lots of things. So let's, let's, be, let's be clear about this. We can cause the world to hate us for bad reasons. But if we are like Jesus, the world will hate us too. Because it hated Jesus first. Because it crucified him and hung him from the tree. Jesus explained this. He says, it's because I tell the world its deeds are evil. And no one can tolerate that forever. No one can stand that. We are the presence of Christ to the world, just like Jesus, the testimony that its ways are wicked, just like Jesus. And most of all, we are telling people there is another king with a capital K who is coming to reign and put our plans in their proper place. Because part of the reason, you remember why the the Pharisees, the religious leaders opposed Jesus? It wasn't just over abstract points of theology. It was a question of who's the boss? Who gets the the worship and the respect of the people? And the people kept going to Jesus, which made everyone else jealous. And part of what we do is we say there's another king that's coming, and the kings and the rulers and the authorities in this world says, not on my watch, because then I'll have to give up what I have. The wealthy and the powerful, those who cooperate with the world as it is today and benefit from it as a result, are not going to go quietly. And because they are the wealthy and the powerful, their opposition will hurt. But God is using this too. He's, he's not surprised. He's not saying, oh no, my people are getting beat up by the world. I didn't see this coming. God's actually doing something with this. In Matthew 27, 25, look how the people responded to Jesus. You've heard this before. And all the people answered at Jesus' crucifixion when Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of Jesus' blood. By the way, Pilate can't do that. You can't just abdicate responsibility in that way. But all of the other people answer to Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children. And someday they will stand before the one true judge. They'll say, but, 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 and and God will say to them, his blood be on us and our children. I'm only giving you what you asked for. But much more hopefully, Mark 15, 39, the centurion, the Roman commander who saw Jesus die, 
When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Some people, for reasons we don't fully understand, maybe just solely because God has chosen to hold them fast, will see and they'll say that's the truth. That's the truth. Because conquering in Revelation doesn't come from power. This is what so many evangelicals today are getting wrong. If we just fought the right way in politics, if we just got the right people in office, right? If we just had the right people in key positions in the corporations in the world, if we just had more money, if we just had more influence, if we just had all of these things through which the world reckons power, then we would be people of significance. Then the world would change. Then people would come to Jesus. But conquering in Revelation doesn't come from power, but from sacrifice and patient endurance. And it's nowhere more clearly seen. I mean, it says it explicitly a bunch of times, like in the letters to the churches, when Jesus speaks to Philadelphia and when he speaks to some of those other churches, he says, you just hold fast until the end. That's conquering. But nowhere, I think, is it more clear than in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, which we covered three weeks ago, last time I preached when the lion of the tribe of Judah is identified as the one worthy to open these scrolls, to unleash the four horsemen. And John turns and he sees the slain lamb. That's what power looks like in God's calculus. The slain lamb. That's what this fifth seal is all about. I kind of skipped over a little bit. But you heard the first four seals unleash these terrible, terrible horsemen on the world. And in the fifth seal, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And this is a just question. Right? I know in the world that we live in, we often want to be like, dude, relax. Like, we, we don't, we're too enlightened to get back at people. But do you go up to the rape victims and say, hey, you shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't be angry at that person who did that terrible thing to you. Because these aren't just people that you know, the world attempted to murder. These are people the world murdered. And they're saying, how long will you let our murderers walk free? Does anyone want to debate the merit of that question? Does anyone here think that's unjust or unfair or unchristian or or impure and unholy? That is the most just question of all. How long? Look, they're not just living on. They are profiting. They're the people in positions of power and prestige. They've got it the best among the people of the earth. How long are you going to tolerate that? Lord, from sorrow's deep I call. When my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation. But these people, did you notice that they're, they're under the altar? What a strange thing. This is probably the altar of incense rather than the altar where the blood sacrifices were made. But the blood would be poured on this altar 
a couple of times a year, most especially at the Day of Atonement, when everyone was made pure. And uh, G.K. Beale writes, uh, he also quotes uh, another gentleman here, Michael Card, but he, he writes this. He says, the saints are strangely under the altar instead of on it. And this may allude merely to blood running down to the base of the altar after having been poured on its top. But what is more probably in mind is the association or virtual equation in both Revelation and Jewish writings of this altar with the throne of God. This is the place from which God rules, whose sovereign purpose ultimately protects the saints. See, it wasn't an accident that they ended up here. God in his sovereignty brought them to himself. God in his sovereignty even ordained their martyrs' deaths as a testimony to the world. So placing the saints under the altar emphasizes the divine protection that has held sway over their soul despite even their loss of physical life because of persecution. They're dead, but they're not dead. And they will be raised to life. Indeed, God sends these persecutions on them. Why? To test their faith and to make them pure, yes. And also to testify to the world someday, this is your sin. This is why you were condemned. Here is the evidence. Those who persevere through temptation sacrifice themselves on God's heavenly altar, the counterpart of Jesus' cross. And what do they receive? They're under the altar. They cry out to God, and God says, it's not time yet for the judgment. But he, he brings them out, and he, he gives them a white robe. Because the world had killed them, saying they're dirty, they're bad, they are our enemies. And God clothes them in, in a white cloth that says, you are holy, you are good. The robes are not given as a reward for purity of faith, but as a heavenly declaration of the saints' purity and righteousness, and as an annulment of the guilty verdict rendered against them. By the, word, once, uh, by the world. Once again, G.K. Beale. Finally, because we got one more seal left, right? But actually, we have two seals left, right? We're only on the fifth seal. There's only six seals in the sermon today. The seventh seal, you have to go way back farther in Revelation to get to. In the sixth seal, I watched, there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. What a picture that is. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The whole world is coming undone because God's judgment is landing on the earth. If seals one through four emphasize past and present and even at least marginally future realities before the time when Jesus comes back. Seal 5 talks about what happens to God's people in this world dominated by the four horsemen and how they have a good future and a hope. And now Seal 6 looks forward and says the whole world is going to come apart and undone. God will judge it. God will judge it all. And look what, look what happens. The kings of the earth the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? First, the prayers of the saints are answered, aren't they? So keep praying them, folks. Praying with humility, because we don't always confidently recognize what is right and wrong and what's good and evil. Anyone ever had to repent? I thought that was a great thing, and it found out, found out it was bad. I thought that was a bad thing. I found out it was, or I thought it was a bad thing. I found out it was actually good, or at least not bad in the way I thought. Pray with humility, but continue to pray. God, judge and make right what's gone wrong in this world. Vindicate your people, not for our sins, but because we belong to Jesus Christ and because we've been faithful in our testimony. The rebellion of the wicked is fully revealed. Did you, how interesting is this? Let's maybe be a bit detached for a moment. Here comes all of the wrath, and nobody asks for mercy. Did you catch that? Nobody says, oh God, please don't bring it. Everyone says, oh no, it's here. There's a part of us that always knew it was coming, and yet we refuse to live differently, and even now, we will not repent. And that gives the lie. People say, if God only appeared, if he only made himself obvious, I would believe in him. And it's not true. Because it's not the evidence that keeps us away from God, but the rebellion and brokenness in our heart. They're like Jonah. Remember Jonah gets swallowed by the big fish? There's songs about it. I can't remember any of them at the moment. To your benefit, I'm sure. But God says to Jonah, I'm going to give you Jonah in like 30 seconds. God says to Jonah, hey, go to Nineveh, the people you hate most in the world. Tell them that I want them to repent, and if they do, everything will be fine. And Jonah says, that's the most terrible idea I've ever heard. He goes to, Tarsh he goes to uh, Joppa, to the port city. He buys a ticket on a ship. The Jesus Storybook Bible says it my very favorite way. One ticket to not Nineveh, please. But that's not actually strong enough, because Jonah says, give me a ticket to Tarshish, which is as far away from Nineveh as I can possibly possibly get from Joppa. No, God, I am not doing it. And then what happens? Jonah, he's in the boat. The storm kicks up. They're in the middle of the sea. There's no salvation. All the sailors, you know, they're throwing stuff overboard to lighten the ship. They're praying out to all of their gods. They come to Jonah. They say, Jonah, do you have any idea why this is happening? And Jonah says, yes, this is my fault because I'm rebelling against God. And then Jonah gets down on his knees and he prays, God, I'm so sorry. You know, spare all these people. I will go to Nineveh. He does not do that. Jonah says, throw me over the side. I would rather die than do what God has called me to do. Now, the story of Jonah, thankfully, goes on. Jonah gets swallowed up by the great fish after three days and nights. I mean, he is determined, right? He is in the belly of the fish or in the mouth of the fish. How awful must it have been? And he waits three days and three nights before he says, okay, finally, I'll go. And the fish vomits him up on the sea. And he's like, look, we're right by Nineveh. What a coincidence. <laughs> but do you get it? I mean, look at, look at what's happening here. Fall on us mountains. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Not God, we're so sorry, even at this late date. Have mercy on us. They are Jonah. They are Jonah. Finally, the corrupt systems in the world are judged. 
This is something that Christians have observed for a long time, before there was any such thing as you know, critical race theory, whatever else we're fighting about in our culture these days, about the, the problems and the systems that we have. The systems in our world are judged because they are not fair or just. Sometimes it's because we're human beings and we can't always discern what's fair and just. Period. Right? We, we're well-intentioned, but we just can't. We're not equipped. That's part of why God subjected the world to this futility and vanity so we would see, oh, wait, even if we know some stuff, we're not God. We can't do this. Only God can. But sometimes our systems are just outright evil. And God is not going to let us or anyone or anything get away with it. You notice that uh, in, in the Bible, when Jesus comes back, he's the king. He doesn't say, like, you know, I like that system of government you've got in America. That's a pretty good one. Why don't we do that? He says, no. None of your systems are going to make it. We're not going to keep any of them. I will rule. And it's not because he is one of the conquerors like this horseman here. See, here's the interesting thing. Some people, that first horseman, there before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Remember we said white is a good color in Revelation. But here, when he's associated with these other three horsemen, this is not a good guy. The white is a lie. And how often do we see that in this world that we live into? I've got all the answers for you folks. I'll take care of you. I'll make it all right. Every election cycle, everyone puts on white. And it's a lie. Sometimes a well-intentioned, well-meaning lie, but a lie nonetheless. That's not who we are. Let's not live like that. Christians, we are pilgrims on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are not at home in the present world order. So don't make it your home. We are not men and women of earthbound vision, saying the only things that are pop, uh, possible are the things that we can do. We have heavenly vision. God will make it right against all odds. We don't trust in earthly security, how quickly it's taken away. We are able to look beyond the things that are seen and temporal because we have met Jesus Christ and he isn't just a man who had his origin 2,000 years ago, born of Mary. But he is God himself, begotten before time began, not made, as the Nicene Creed says. He has lived forever. He will live forever. He is good. He is the heavenly man. And he brings to earth all that heaven has to offer. The book of Revelation is not a roadmap to the end of the world. Rather, it is a map for this moment in time. How will we live? Will we cooperate with the four horsemen? Or will we lose like we mean it? Following Jesus to the cross. Understanding that he clothes his saints 
and white, no matter how filthy we became on earth and living as people of a heavenly vision. 